0: If you're ever having a bad day, imagine my day on the 31st of July, 2017. I'm fired from the White House. I'm lit up by every late night comedian in America. I'm parodied on Saturday Night Live. I'm torched by every cable news pundit. 40 newspapers excoriated me simultaneously. Not only am I okay, watch what I do with this.
1: This is a really, really interesting one. So I got approached recently by the PR people for Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch. Now, some British people listening might go, well, who's? what's that all about? So Scaramucci is now known for having served in the Trump's White House and for having served for the shortest amount of time because he was fired within 11 days because he spoke to a reporter and some stuff got out that he had said about the Trump administration and all that kind of thing, and... Um, yeah, it was a terrible moment for him. He is known in the US in New York for being a real New Yorker and for his investment firm, Skybridge Capital. Now, you guys know that I know very little about finance. Uh, he was at Goldman Sachs and Oscar Capital Management. These are all things that just sound like like white noise to me. So when I was approached to have him on, I thought, okay, well, let's have a look at this guy. What's, what's the deal that's not, you know, what can I see that's not financy? Although we do talk a bit about finance and it turned out he had just been on this SAS thing uh, Like a reality show with Mel B and Britney Spears sister and a a bunch of other people Uh, Special forces world's toughest test and though the things they put them through are absolutely insane So I thought anyone who's done that they're going to be an interesting person. I can talk to them uh, in, In the podcast. So he's a really really interesting guy He hates trump as you can imagine. So he's going to talk a little bit about that gives us some of the Inside scoop on trump and I ask him stuff, you know, I ask him Personal stuff because that's that's my style. So when it is someone who's very political or very uh financial and he's been in both of these things and he's such an interesting person for me it's about okay how can i get to the human and the human you know i asked him are you a psychopath are you a narcissist and he answers that in in this episode because i feel like you have to be to an extent to work to be successful in those industries although yeah, well, I'll let you know at the end what I think, actually, because I, uh, I I sort of changed a few things. You know, he changed how I thought about him in certain ways. Uh, he's a lot of fun to listen to. So I think even if you're not familiar with like the American stuff and the Italian-American style and all of this stuff, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I hope you do. I really, really did. Now, the reason that Anthony wanted to come on, apart from just to have a nice chat with me, is to discuss his new podcast, promote his new podcast. I mean, that's what this is, right? This is what the podcast thing is. We all go on each other's and we talk about one another's and hopefully you guys like them. And that's the whole point of it. And he's got this really, really interesting podcast. It might not be exactly what you expect from him because it's not necessarily finance related or even politics related, although a lot of it is. It's called Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci. You can get it in all the normal podcast places. um, And there is a lot about trump and finance and stuff but really it's just about anthony's favorite books the books that helped him the books that uh made him think differently uh listeners will hear and get to know the real anthony the proud son of immigrant parents a long-suffering new york Mets fan and a father of five. It's really, really interesting. So do get that. Do check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next time on the podcast is Chris Shelton, the former Scientologist discussing what emotional needs narcissists and cult leaders exploit and whether you have them. Jason Flom's coming on to talk about wrongful conviction. Stephen Hassan to define cults. Uh, and on Saturday, which is go- which is behind the paywall as many of you now know, Saturday's episode, there's a QA I did for reaching 75,000 YouTube subscribers. That's coming up this Saturday. The following uh, is Michael Rexenwald talking about atheism versus secularism. He's a professor who got cancelled for his outlandish views. But now you're on the edge of the mooch and getting fired by Trump and uh, becoming a crypto millionaire and what it's like to be a millionaire and all of those things with Anthony Scaramucci. What motivated you to go on Special Forces World's Toughest Test?
0: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Andrew. I would say, you know, general stupidity was probably one of the motivations. I think secondarily, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I'd been to Iraq and Afghanistan on troop support missions. And when my agent showed me what people were doing, I'm like, all right, let me see if I'm capable of doing that. And, uh Maybe perhaps it would give me some empathy for the situation. And so, I mean, they blew the doors off of I me mean, if you're watching the show. But at age 58, I'm still in it. You know, I, I, I don't want to blow the show because it's still on the air. But I mean, I've gotten through five episodes so far. There's only 10 episodes. And so I was the oldest person out there, but for Dr. Drew, who left in uh, episode one. So I'm hanging in there. They're yelling at me and mistreating treating me and doing all the things they're supposed to do. Uh, but somebody said to me, well, are you a tough guy now? I'm like, no, I'm not a tough guy. The tough guys are the guys that are running that show, the special operators themselves. I mean, we're, 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 we're just out there seeing if we can do a p- portion or a tiny piece of what they're all capable of. How are you
1: 58? You look about my age. I'm in my thirties.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a tremendous amount of Botox in my forehead, like right in here and then up in there. Okay. And so I don't want to look like shit on television. So that's about a $7,000 forehead. It's almost as smooth as a bowling ball, though, Andrew. No, I think I'm present.
1: The hair is mine, though. That I give myself credit for. <laughs> and is that right about the Botox?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to be nice to me. You, you live in the UK? Or where do you live Yeah, in? Oh, You're probably, uh, okay, but, you know, if you lived here in North America. I think I've cornered the market on no- North American Botox. Most of it's in my garage. So I tell all these women that tease me, they better be nice to me. Otherwise, I'll. I'll, I'll cut their supply. No, <laughs> so I do Did you do it to I, yourself? No, I. Like, oh, I got a dermatologist that does it. I mean, come on. Hey, man. I don't know about By the this way, I'm stuff. Not, I'm not 58 anymore. I'm 59. I just turned 59 January 6th. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, yeah. you got to keep yourself in shape, though, too. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're watching the show. I mean, I'm moving. You know, I got myself up the tower of Akaba, and then I jumped out the tower, repelled down the side. I mean, I was bashing myself against the side of the building so I didn't quote unquote pass it
1: but I passed the fact that I had the balls to do it you know what I mean <laughs> so you want to keep talking about the action but I'm sidetracked by this because I'm at that sort of age now well I'm really sidetracked by this because I didn't realize men are doing this Tom Cruise is obviously I mean I, I watched that film he's in that maverick thing he he doesn't look whatever age he no, is I guess everyone's doing it okay okay let me give you a couple pieces of advice okay I'm not probably an observation if someone
0: is 59 years old and they don't have a lot of wrinkles, they're using Botox, okay? Period at the end. Or they've had a facelift, but you can tell that I have not had a facelift because you can tell when somebody has a facelift because they're like, well, like this and shit. You don't want to do that to yourself. Just use a little bit of Botox here and there. You don't need it yet. How old are you? Thirty, about to turn 34. Yeah, you don't need it. You're You're, you're fine. But when you... When you close in on like 45,50, you know, hopefully you'll stay in touch with me. I'll give you some advice. Okay, I'm very good at this. You don't want to <laughs> overdo it, and you don't want to underdo it. And just remember, for all the women that listen to your show. Pain in vain. Pain and vain rhyme for a reason. OK? I mean, you may not have liked a vaccination shot as a kid. But uh, I can take 26 Botox shots at a forehead like a champion. It's absolutely no problem because you don't want to look like shit on television
1: or your podcast. Yeah, that's true. And you do look lovely. The, the hair one, I'm glad it's your own hair because that's supposed to be really painful.
0: The hair, yeah. The yeah. hair is mine. No, That's my own hair. And that's, yeah, because um, that can be painful. It's a hair transplant. Italian Chia Pet. There's no, uh, uh, there's no hair transplant or any shit like that. That's just luck. That's uh, genetics. And by the way,
1: well, the brother's bald and I fucking, you like to curse on this podcast or not? You can. For YouTube, I'm going to censor it out. Right. So we've got, well, it's I mean, ridiculous. I have to have
0: love to. the fact that my brother's bald because he used to beat me into the ground when we were kids. And I just, I think it's a good karmic thing that he has like a, a monk spot on the back of his head that's like nine inches in circles. In it's beautiful.
1: Let me tell you though, because I like advances in all this technology for beauty and stuff like that, but I've got long, thick hair, as you can see. And it annoys me that now people can get hair transplants because that was the one thing I had. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But trust me, that that's a hard thing to go through. You don't want to do that. No, you don't want to do that. No one should do that. Hey, on the show, were you hanging out with Mel B, Britney Spears' sister, Jamie Lynn as well? Well, yes. I mean, you know, saying hanging hey, yeah. out, let me give you the
0: circumstances. We were 16 of us at the store sleeping in a canvas tent on a very thin canvas, military issued cot. And we all had standard issued backpacks and rucksacks, if you will, and standard issue clothing. And so we were on top of each other. There was no plumbing. Um, so we had to use the laboratory in a, la- in a latrine and these like steel cisterns, and then there was a water tower. It was being heated by the desert sun to do our shower. So we were on top of each other and interacted with each other. It was impossible not to converse with each other, hang with each other, but also share the painful experience together. Um, as it relates to Mel B, I probably got closer to her than Jamie Lynn Spears. Although Jamie Lynn Spears was great, but I think she left maybe d- day one or two. Mel stayed for like, I think, three or four days but she was, she was great. She's a very real person. She's down to earth. She's like a blue collar kid from Manchester, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm a blue collar kid from Long Island. So I think we identify that way. Um, and one thing I would say to people about Mel B. Again, this is just my observation in the short period of time that I was with her. I see her as a perfectionist. She's a very hard worker and she's a very dedicated performer. You know, so I'm sure Every one of those dance moves, everything that she's done in her life, she's working super hard. Um, and she's an impressive person. And I love her honesty, by the way. There's a lot of uh wisdom and pathos and the honesty of Melby, uh, which I also appreciate.
1: Hey, did you ever fear for your life at any point? I know there's obviously producers and things around you, but yeah, stuff can
0: happen. Well, right? I mean, honestly, a couple of times I did, maybe just my anxiety. And when I was on that double uh, tightrope, so you have One tightrope for your hands and one for your feet. And you're going across, you're traversing this gorge, if you will. It was probably a couple hundred feet in the air. There's a safety clip on, but I have to be honest with you. I was like, oh my God, if this safety clip sails, this is it. And so I didn't, look, I'm going to be totally open with you. I did not have the strength physically to get to the other side. Now, they said that all of us did. I'm telling you, I didn't. And Plus, the wind was blowing me, okay? And I don't feel like I had the strength physically to get to the other side. But I got further because psychologically, I was like, I don't want to test the safety harness. I don't want to fall and test the safety harness. And so, I was desperate to get to the other side. Of course, I couldn't. I fell. And I was like, oh, God, please let the safety harness catch, okay? And it did. And then there's a second scene where I'm on a, uh, I'm on a a controlled vertical drop. I smashed my head, which is a whole problem onto itself, but I had Gus breaking for me. And if you saw, he probably needed to break 15 or 20 feet earlier than he did. And so when I got to the bottom, I was probably too close to the bottom. Now, having said that, I'm sure Jason Fox. Known as Foxy was standing right next to him, he would have pulled the brake, I'm hoping. But I mean, I was a little scary. Other than those two things, I was okay. I panicked in the uh in the car. And so when they put me in that sort of Range Rover and they sunk me at the port uh in the Gulf of Akaba, um, I I I think I only lasted in the car about 15 seconds. And so that's something to do with a little bit of my claustrophobia. And fear of drowning, I'm in the core controlling. I could have probably stayed longer. And if I had probably practiced that a few times, I probably would have gotten it. But I, I panicked in the core, uh, and I didn't wait long enough for them to signal to me to get out. When they set me on fire, I did, you know, I was pretty relaxed about that because I think I was so tired. I mean, they, the guy says to me, we're going to set you on fire. I said, okay. I said, do I have to lift anything? He said, no. And I said, okay, do I have to run anywhere? And he said, no. I said, okay, please just set me on fire. The fact that I don't have to lift anything or run anywhere, I was so tired. But then when he lit me on fire, I looked into the camera. I said, you know, I, I've been fired before, but never like this. This is a new type of firing. Uh, and then, of course, I ran out of the uh, house and put myself out of fire. Um, it was cra- I mean, look, it was crazy. You know, my wife is like, you're nuts, you know. I was coming out of a steakhouse the other night, and there was a a, a four-person, like you know, two couples, out to dinner. Coming out of that, and the, the one woman, was like, wait a minute, you're Anthony Scaramucci. I'm watching you on that show. Are you crazy? And I said, you know, in hindsight, yes, I'm actually crazy. I didn't realize how crazy it was going to be. That's the truth. Probably should have watched S A S show in the U K
1: before I did. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that because that's actually my next question. Because I've always felt the very successful people in finance and in politics, and you've been in both, are probably higher up on the psychopath spectrum. Do you think? I mean, and the way you were just describing it, maybe not, because you did seem to fear a lot of feel a lot of fear. Do you think you're some way up there?
0: Yes, I mean, you know, psychopath. and You know, I I, I have a conscience. I don't think I'm I could ever really be in politics. It's probably why I only lasted eleven days. I have a conscience, and I understand, I think, from my upbringing, the difference between right and wrong. And I want to do the right thing. And I don't want to be that hypocrite, that as hypocrite, that you sort of need to be in politics. But, but so I, I don't think I'm a psychopath in that way. But I do think I'm a psychopath in the sense that I don't really fear too many things. You know, my, my attitude is we're here visiting the planet. Uh, I've also been very blessed with a very good life. Uh, Mel Brooks, the American comedian has a great line at him. He says, relax none of us are getting out of here alive. And I think it's a beautiful line about how you got to live your life. And so my attitude is, uh, I left Goldman. People said, you got a great job. Your father was a crane operator. Why would you leave Goldman? I said, well, I want to have my own business. Well, suppose your business fails, didn't care. Uh, and then I sold that business successfully. I left Lehman. I mean, if you had told me Lehman was going to out of business and Skybridge was going to make it, I would probably not believe that, but that happened. Um, and my attitude is I'm going to do what I think is right for me. And I'm also not going to care much about what other people think. You know, like right now I'm getting my ass kicked in my fund. My fund is down. Uh, Bloomberg reported that it was down 39% for the year 2022, which it was. We're now up 10 this year. So we're sort of in 13 months, we're down about 34. I mean, it is what it is, but I mean, they're writing one bad article about me a day. You would think I'm like the most important money manager in the world. Like I'm running, like I'm running $2 billion, but they're writing about me. Like I'm running 2 trillion, which is a bunch of nonsense. You either give me shit or you don't. I personally don't. My attitude is I'm bringing my clients into the future uh with these investments and these growth areas and this digital technology. And the ones that are smart will stay patient. They're going to be very handsomely rewarded by the process. But unfortunately everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses and they panic and they run around like nuts. Um but I don't have that fear. You know, so me, I guess that's uh, psychopathic or sociopath. I don't know what it is, but my attitude is if you're going to make a difference, if you're going to push yourself, you can't be conventional. And a result of which, uh, not being conventional is taking more risk than the
1: average person. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Lucas. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. There's a difference between what they call cognitive empathy and affective empathy. And cognitive empathy would be what you described, I think, is that you're able to understand right and wrong and and why some things are good or bad and that kind of thing. But then affective empathy is actually feeling the, the sort of sadness of others. And when something bad happens to someone, you feel it. Do you, would you say you have that as well?
0: Well, I would like to think I have that. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask my wife, really, if I had that. I think she would say I <laughs> have that. I mean, you know, the, pro- the problem is when you're out there like me and you get monikered as a narcissist. And this, so then the first thing people say, well, if you're a narcissist, you have no empathy for others. I don't, frankly, see myself as a narcissist because… And again, this is just my opinion of being a narcissist. You know, narcissists are focused on themselves. If you look at my career, the people that have worked with me or my family, you know, I've really tried to focus on taking care of them, taking care of the people that work with me alongside of me at Skybridge. And so I don't see that. Um, But if if you said to me that I am a... uh, Someone that has narcissistic features, I would say yes, I definitely have some narcissistic features. And I think that comes from my upbringing because if you grow up like I did in a violent household and you grow up in a household that has like a fractured uh, way of going about things and you don't have a lot of parental guidance or role modeling, you self soothe or self parent yourself. And so You have to set up belief systems about yourself so that you can get through the day. So I do think that that creates some narcissistic features. I don't think I could talk about it as openly. You know, you find that real narcissists are like they scoff at it and they pretend that they're they're nothing like that. You follow you follow what I'm saying? So, you know, and I mean, you'd have to ask my wife. I think ultimately, I think I have a lot of empathy for people. It's not just because of the charitable work I do; it's because of the way I care about the people around me. Also, my grandmother was a maid. And so you better believe that you gotta treat people below you in my company better than you're treating the people above you. Otherwise you'd probably get fired by somebody like me. I don't like I don't like when subordinates are mistreated. And I'm always leaving money in hotel rooms because that person could be somebody's grandmother. So I don't know if that's cognitive empathy or the other type of empathy that you said, but I do think that- I, I'm mindful that the woman or the man that's cleaning my room probably needs the money, you know, and I, and I always try to make sure I'm over tipping people because I've been blessed and uh, probably the people that are serving me could use the help. But you were going to answer me a question. You wanted me to talk about something. I'm sorry. I was on a little. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's okay. I, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that um, violent household. No, my
0: father was a rough guy. You know, you, You grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood out on Long Island where your dad is in the union, and he's a heavy smoker, and he drinks, and he's working a crane, and he's got a tremendous amount of economic anxiety because he has no control over his earnings. Um, You can have a lot of hostility and acting out in a household. And so, you know, it was a tough upbringing. You know, my older brother uh, has cycled in and out of drug addiction. I sort of channeled it into workaholism. Um, it, it's a uh, manifestation of a reality um, that you just have to accept. You know. Now, listen, my father's eighty-seven. I take care of him. I have forgiven him for whatever the hell happened. I mean, you have to do that too. You forgive people for yourself more than anything else. But, but yeah, it was a rough upbringing, and it manifested itself into different things. You know, you, when you grow up in a dysfunctional family, people take on roles. You know, one of my roles, frankly, was, okay, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to go to some good schools. I'm going to try to do the right thing. But let me tell you, it never works out that way because you grow up in a violent household, you either become violent or you go to the antipode of that. You go to the other side of that and you become a conflict avoider. And I think me being a conflict avoider for the first 15 or 20 years of my business career hurt me. Um, you know, I've been I've been more cognizant of that and I'm more available for conflict now. You know, if someone's starting shit with me, I have no problem going back at them. I don't like starting it, but I know how to finish it. You know, when Trump went after me, I was like, okay, no problem. Go right back at him. I don't care. You know, I, mean, I know how to deal with bullies. Trust me, I grew up in a neighborhood with bullies. And so, you know, you got to be ready to fight a bully.
1: He does seem a bit like a, a, a bully at the risk of alienating some listeners. Seems a jackass. Yeah. I
0: mean, if, th- if those are your if those are your listeners, let me just tell those listeners, he was a complete jackass yeah. and you're being biased by the media and slanted by levels of ideology. You know, there's better messengers for that movement. You know, if you want to be in the Republican Party, or even the "quote unquote" MAGA movement, there's better messengers, and better people than him. He didn't have the executive management skills or the competence to do that job properly. Um, and you don't you don't alienate people like that when you're the President of the United States. Uh, the first name of the country is United. Let's just remind everybody that it's the United States of America. It's not the tribal states of America. It's not the disunited states of America. So you need somebody in the position that is thinking about that and wants to unify the country, not alienate people. Anyway, I don't want to alienate, I don't want to alienate your listeners, but you brought me on. So, you know, and you knew, you knew was bringing me on, I was going to fucking tell people
1: the truth. So I think it's probably only a small, a small section would be Trump fans. I, 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 I agree with you. I think, you know, Democrat, Republican, whatever you want to be, I don't really get the Trump thing yeah, I don't get the Trump thing. Now, before we get into all the politics and and crypto and all that stuff I want to talk about, um, you've talked about your childhood. You're now a multimillionaire, I gather, right? Is that nice? Is it good being a multimillionaire? Um, yeah, and listen, you know, it's what Branson said, you know, Richard's a friend of mine. you know,
0: I had no money, and I have money. Money is better, okay? So but it doesn't this is the irony of the thing. It, you know, your life is still complicated and you're still dealing with the human condition. So what is the human condition? You're born alone. You're going to die alone. You have the trials and tribulations of being human and mortal. You have to watch people that you love die. I mean, this is the human condition, right? Shakespeare wrote about this. Socrates wrote about it, Plato. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you are dealing with the human condition. I'll I'll, I'll tell this story. Because it was a time when I had absolutely no money. I was working for a law firm. It was my first year at Harvard. I was in summer. I was working for a law firm out in Southampton on Long Island. It was actually pretty good money. And I was sitting with the lawyer who ran the practice, and I was in his backyard. And he had this beautiful pool. And he had this very nice house and this, you know, sort of summer no town known as Southampton, but he lived there full-time. And he said to me, you know, Scaramucci, I had no money as a kid and now I got a little bit of money, but let me tell you something. The money's complicated. I would rather just have a plate of pasta and watch the news and go to bed. And ultimately that's what I was, you know, how I grew up. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, Mr. Pelican, you're saying that because you have money. And so the money is solving all your problems. I have no money. You're just saying that because you're in a smug position where you have money. And he said, no, no, you'll see someday. You're a hustler. You're a good kid. You're going to end up with some money. You'll see exactly what I mean. And that son of a bitch was 100% right because this is a message for your viewers and listeners. They should really pay attention. You don't need that much. Okay. If I had to go back to a white t-shirt and a small house. With a rabbit ear television to watch the New York Mets and a six-pack of beer, I'm a happy, happy camper. And I think people have to understand that about their lives. They don't need that much, but we have this mimetic thing that we're doing with each other, where you know we mime each other. So you know, if I if a rich person has a Rolls Royce, then I'm I'm got to tunnel myself to try to get myself a Rolls Royce to prove that I'm rich, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do that. But ultimately, you actually don't need to do any of that, which he, what, what I have found has been the most rewarding thing for me are my personal relationships. You know, so, yes, I have some money. Um, you know, It's more than I thought I would ever have, frankly. I'm very blessed about that. Uh, it is complicated to have money sometimes. Um, I try to give some of the money away to people that I think really need it. I try to take care of my family members. But the truth of the matter is, I don't need that much. And I think people realize that Mr. Pelican, may his soul rest in peace. He was a lovely guy. Uh, I think he was right more than he was wrong. That's the irony of the whole thing. But when I was 23, dead broke and had loads of school debt. I was like, this guy is out to lunch. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But philosophically, he was more. It was closer to the truth than I thought at that young age.
1: Yeah, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. You know, I started this podcast just a few years ago, and the first month I had four listens, and it now has five, six million a month. Um, and when I started, I was also on like minimum wage, you know, just sort of getting by. And now it's better. But I'm much more stressed than I ever was. And now there's the fear of losing it all and the fear of like YouTube's going to take my channel down because I swore too much on a video. you got to pay you
0: got the tax, you know, the tax man's after you, yeah. uh, your friends know that you're successful. They're looking for loans. Yeah. You know, get- no, no,
1: not no. yet.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to tell you something that you should listen to. Okay. There are wants and there are needs and always look at things through that funnel. You know, if, if I've got dough and one of my family members is saying that I want a Mercedes or I want a Range Rover That's a want. And then there are needs. You know, I have a surgery coming up that's not covered by my insurance if I go to this certain insurance. You see what I mean? That's a want versus a need. That's a need versus a want. You see what I'm saying? I always draw that distinction with people when they're asking me for help. Something's a want or something's a need. And to me, I'm all about helping people with needs. You know, I've put some of my nieces and nephews through college. I've helped some of my friends with their kids' education, happy to do that. But I'm not going to buy somebody a Mercedes-Benz. I mean, I buy my mother one, you know. I mean, it's actually, she's driving around, my 86-year-old mother's driving around in a Maserati. She's a little bit of a nut. She's 90 miles an hour in the town I go in, okay. She's Italian. She's nuts. But that's my mother. You see what I mean? But ultimately, there are wants and needs. Make that distinction for yourself.
1: How do you bring up your kids then? You've got five, I think, yeah, to I- not... To, to have that same sort of idea and to not feel like things can just come to them?
0: Uh, it's a good question, but I want things to come to them, right? Because nothing came easy for me, so I want to make it easier for them. And I tell my kids uh, one of the best lessons that I learned is from a very wealthy man whose father was very wealthy. And he said, Anthony, you are gonna have a little bit of dough. Make sure your kids have absolutely no guilt about the dough that you have. And so you're going to help them with their lives because of the dough that you have and make sure they don't feel any guilt whatsoever. And I've always said that to my kids if you've got something better or more, don't feel any guilt. And if people resent you for it, you know, you got to tell them to scram because you're just not hanging out with the right people. You want to be with people that celebrate the successes that you have. And I want to be that person for my friends. You know, I, I tell my kids, I can only give you two things, celebrate the successes of your friends and do something you really love because life is short. So, so, but here's the thing. If you want a fulfilling life, you have to work and you have to push yourself to find something you're very passionate about. Maybe for you, it's this podcast or interviewing people. Maybe for me, it's, uh, managing money or enjoying the process of entrepreneurship because I have, uh ownership in a lot of companies. I mean, the paper only reports the bad news. You know, I've got all these little companies that have done very, very well. Um, and what I, what, I, what I say to my kids, find something that you love, do it intensely and passionately. And so I would say my adult children have all figured that out. And so they're all working very hard. None of them is living on the dole. Uh, I have an eight and five-year-old at home. They're too young to figure that out but I want them to have an easy life. I don't, I mean, I want the kids not to have any school debt when they graduated. I had school debt. I want them to have access to things or relationships that I didn't have. And I think that's a natural thing and people shouldn't resent that. You know, you know, you live in, the, you, you live in the UK. There's some socialist nonsense that goes on in the UK and there's like all of this aristocratic structure and if you have the wrong accent from a wrong neighborhood. You can't get a job and all this nonsense, you know, what I would say to the people in the UK, you know, live your life without an apology, have to apologize or anything. You know, I got, we're talking about the special forces, right? I'm not stupid. I got casted on that show because I'm a wealthy wall street jerk off. Okay. I know that I'm, I'm a white male, wall street, wealthy jerk off that got unceremoniously fired from the white house. Let's torture this son of a bitch. On that track. Now they missized me and realized I was a blue collar kid and I could go through the wall at age 58, but they still cut it that way. Go look at episode four. It was very, very important for them to cut me as some like Wall Street white male jerk off. Okay. But I don't care. That's life. Okay. You know, you don't go on reality television and expect anything but the outcome that they're going to contrive, you know. So, that's the editing process. That's the risky take going on the TV show. But. You either know that and don't care about it,
1: or you know that and it gets you upset. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. I suppose the difficult thing is, uh, if I, and I, I respect what you're saying about your kids, because I think it is quite healthy, that thing of like, hey, own it. I think that's what you're saying. Own it. Like, this is this is it, and enjoy your lives. Uh, but I guess happiness sometimes comes up. I, I feel sorry for the royals sometimes, the royal family, because it's like, I think for happiness sometimes, you've got to have somewhere to go from somewhere you were. Um, and, and I also wonder, you know, so so some, someone who's a hero of mine is like a documentary maker called Louis Thoreau, and he's made like 100 documentaries. So I always think like, well, what's the 101st documentary? How's that getting him out of bed? You know, the 102nd. So for you, are you looking at like Elon Musk? Do you look at him and go like, okay, I wanna get there? Like, how do you keep no, motivating yourself? No, no,
0: no, 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 no. God bless Elon, I think he's the man. I mean, I just debated Kara Swisher on Twitter. She's saying he's killing Twitter. I think he's reviving Twitter. I love, I I respect Elon Musk a great deal. I'm not looking for that. This is a process, a journey for me. I'm not looking for that. If you said to me when I was 17, okay, Anthony, here's how your life is going to unfold. You're going to get your ass kicked a few times. You're going to be unceremoniously forward from the White House. You're going to get fired from Goldman, rehired into Goldman. You're going to have the 2008 financial crisis almost knock you out of business. 2022 will be the worst year of your financial services career, but you are going to be independently wealthy, have a podcast, author six books, be the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011. You're going to uh, be on television, host a television show, do a few reality shows, have an award-winning global conference, speak at the World Economic Forum. I mean, now I sound like I'm blowing myself. I'm not trying to. I'm just saying, like, but, you know, all of this stuff's going to happen to you. I'm taking it. I'm taking the whole thing if I'm 17. Here's the thing that's important.
1: You have kids? No, not yet.
0: Okay. Well, you, 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 you know, may, maybe you'll decide to have them someday. It's very important for your kids to see your failings and very important for your kids to see your shortcomings. There are so many rich jerk offs in New York that try to glorify their lives. Like I read their autobiographies or their memoirs and they've had this 45 degree angle straight up and they've gotten every single thing right in their life and they, this, that, and the other thing, everything is revised history. Remember this, Andrew, people remember things the way they need to, not the way they actually happen. You see what I'm saying? And so that's the worst thing you could do for your kids. The best thing you do for your kids is show them that you're human, mortal, fragile. You can take a punch and get up off the ground because this way you're now giving your kids so much space to live in. Yeah. My father got fired from the white house. He didn't care. He got up and went back to work. Oh yeah. My father got fired from Goldman Sachs. He didn't care. My point is, you know, I mean, Bloomberg's writing that my fund's down. Yes, my fund is down, but I, you know, will they write when my fund recovers? They probably won't write that. Who cares? point is it's good for my kids to see all of this you see what i mean i like the process i don't need to be the elon musk i like getting up tomorrow and seeing what's going to happen what new company can i invest in what technology is transforming the world what new podcaster
1: i'm going to meet like andrew gold you know this shit's fun man it's fun yeah so that experience in the White House, I like that you own this stuff. And I saw that you compared the measurements of a Scaramucci and a truss. I mean, what is the difference between those two measure- units of measurements?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, listen, and you know, I rounded up for her. She lasted 4.09 Scaramucci's. And Scaramucci's <laughs> are 11 days. When people say 10, it hurts my feelings. Because why would anybody want to chip me at a 9.1% of my federal career? I mean, I got over the math. I got hired on the 21st. And I got fired on the thirty first. That's not ten days. If you work a full day on the twenty first and a whole day on the thirty first, it's eleven days. Even Trump, when him and I were fighting with each other, he wrote on Twitter that I worked for him for eleven days in the White House. So I think he, the President of the United States should be the official scorer. So, so a unit of time, it being a Scaramucci, I think trust lasted forty three or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but. It was 4.09, but I hope she's got a sense of humor. I got a sense of humor. I owe my stuff. Steve Colbert, asked me if I thought it was going to last long in the White House. I'm like, you know, longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. I think it was going to get blown out before the milk soiled,
1: but I got blown out. Hers was like a lettuce, wasn't it? I a, 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 a well, yeah, was had a little Yeah, you had
0: the, because uh, she was abominating from the beginning. And so you had some uh, tabloids saying, well, this head of lettuce outlasts <laughs> us. I think the head of lettuce beat her. but. Yeah. Ever. I mean, here's the thing. Okay. I, I, I don't know Liz Truss, the prime minister, but I got a tremendous amount of respect for her. I'm going to tell you what. She was in the arena. Okay. She was out there slugging and punching. And I'm going to tell your podcast viewers and listeners something get in the arena. Okay. If you have self consciousness about failure or rejection, you're not actualizing your life. Okay. So Liz Truss, she failed. I got blown out of the White House. Big deal. But you know what? I was in the White House and I flew on Air Force One three times. And I can't tell you the number of people I met as a result of that situation. And since we were talking about the reality show, Special Forces, if I didn't get blown out of the White House the way I did, there's no way I would have been invited on that show. No one would have known who I am. So- You have to understand that in your failings, there's always a silver lining. In your failings, there's always something that you can glean from it. And so, again, I don't know Liz Truss, but she was in the arena and she was taking body blows and she wasn't a spectator or a critic critiquing people that are in the arena. And so my message to people is get in the arena, you know, don't be afraid of failure or don't be afraid of, uh. I'm sure when you started this podcast, Andrew, you were like, okay, I don't know if this is going to work or not. And look at it today.
1: Yeah. I didn't you know, think it would. You, you know, got, you, know later in, you got to swing, man. Yeah. Listras might be a bit of a psychopath though. That's what I wonder. But then I diagnose every, that's why I was talking about it earlier. No, I don't know if she's a psychopath,
0: not a psychopath. I can't opine on her, but I admire people that are going for it. That I do. You know, you know there are people that are sitting back and saying, I would have, could have, and should have. And there are other people that are doing and failing. I like those people better, the doing and
1: failing than the woulda, could have shoulda people. That's my point. I hope this is motivating some listeners. Might be motivating people. Hey, so what for for the we've got about half split of British American listeners. So for the British people, what's a way that you could briefly sum up what what happened in those eleven days that, that made you like you know, were you the shortest thing ever the shortest time thing technically
0: ever. technically, I wasn't okay, but you know no one really knows that there was a guy um that lasted one day he got let go after one day. I don't even like bringing his name up because he had something happen with <laughs> family and that was a whole oh. disaster, but whatever, so I'll take it as the person that was the short it doesn't matter um but for the UK listeners, what happened to me was Trump hired me to get rid of Priebus and Bannon. Um, uh, I was supposed to be the OPL director. I was slated for that job on January 20th. Uh, Priebus blocked that job. He was the White House chief of staff, but he did it in a dirty way. You know, He could have just called me and said, hey, Anthony, I hate your guts and I don't want you to work at the White House. And I would have said, okay, and I would have stayed at my job. But he did it in this, like, he was like trying to act like he was like a golly gee willikers, howdy doody type, you know, person. In the meantime, he was like stabbing me in the back. So I called Trump, I had a good relationship with Trump because I was a New Yorker, he was a New Yorker and I made my own money. Trump didn't make his own money. So I didn't give a shit about Trump, you know, his his father gave him the money. And so I think respected the fact that I made my own money. And I offered him honest opinions. And so I called him and said, these two guys, Bannon and Priebus, are terrible people. You're going to want to get rid of them. And when you do call me, I'll come and take care of it. That was a really stupid thing to say because he called me and then he invited me into the White House and he gave me a job that I wasn't suited for. He he put me in charge of communications. I'd never had experience as a communications person in Washington or in government. But I took that job for all the wrong reasons. And so what I would say to your UK listeners, I let my pride and I let my ego affect my decision-making. And so why? Well, I grew up in a blue-collar family with the Tufts, Harvard Law School, built two successful businesses. I wanted to say that I worked for the president of the United States. Well, the president of the United States is batshit crazy. And you, <laughs> so your wife hates him almost as much as Melania Trump hates him. And you shouldn't take the job, but I took the job because of my ego and because of my pride. And I have to own that for the rest of my life. And so I took the job, was ill-suited for the job. They were trying to kill me. I was trying to kill them. And we all got blown out in the Pennsylvania Avenue roughly at the same time. Bannon was such a baby. He got fired on the same day as me, but he like begged John Kelly to keep his job for two weeks so that he would have to walk out of the white house with me, such a baby. Okay. But anyway, he left on the 14th. I left on the 31st. I think, uh, Priebus left on the 28th or something like that. We all got blown out, but I never whined about it. I, I said, okay, I made a mistake. I sent something to a reporter about Bannon, which was really funny. And I don't want to say it on your podcast cause you'll bleep it out. But I said something really funny about the guy. No, go on, say it. No, I said, Bannon was in his office, you know, performing auto Ratio is the best way to come about. Yeah. He was giving himself his own pipe job and, and a reporter who knew me for 25 years, whose father worked with my dad in construction on Long Island, recorded it and ran to CNN with it. And I said to the guy, all right, our relationship is over. Are you going to get me fired for this? Why would you do that? He said he wanted to do it. So he got me fired. No problem. But you know what? It's my fault for trusting him. So I never blamed the reporter. I don't know why this is going on. I have it I have it on uh I have it on uh anyway. I'm sorry. I'm sure you'll cut this That's up. That's all right. I apologize. Yeah. But I trusted the reporter. I shouldn't have trusted the reporter. So, it's 100% on me. I'm 100% accountable for the stupidity of the remark and for getting fired. So I never blamed Trump, I never blamed General Kelly. I walked out of the White House and owned the fire. And I was loyal yeah. to Trump until he started attacking me. And then it's like, all right, that's ridiculous that he's attacking me, but I'm not Ted Cruz. I mean, you're probably figuring that out after the last 40 minutes of talking to me, you're going to attack me. I'm going to fight you back. So I went in, I think I called him the fattest president since William Howard Taft or something like that. And then he, he got really upset and then he, then he said some other nonsense. And then I know he hates being so old. So I said, wow. I said, you're just getting so old. You fastball, you don't even had a troll properly anymore. And I said, by the way, I'm a New Yorker. You got to troll properly. I mean, you know, these other people are afraid of you, but I'm not. And then he went after my wife because that's what Trump does. And once he went after my wife, we knew her and I were having problems because I went to work with him. Thankfully, we patched it up. But once he went after my wife, I said, okay, this guy's got to get his ass kicked. And then I, I just laid into him. And then I, of course, I came up with the. Nickname that he was horrified about because every, you know, Trump's given nicknames everybody, but I had a beautiful nickname for him. You want to hear the nickname was beautiful nickname. Yeah. Yeah, I said, I said on Twitter, I talked to stormy and your nickname is tiny Trump. And I said, and that explains everything. The over masculinity, the high heels that you're wearing. He's got like two inch inserts in his shoes, the orange war paint. I mean, you're tiny Trump, you know? And, and once I did that, he flipped. And then he tried to get some intermediaries in there to stop the Twitter fight, which, of course, I said, that's fine. We'll stop the Twitter fight. But then I worked as hard as I could to knock him out of office. But, of course, Trump being Trump, he beat himself. I mean, no one beat Donald Trump but himself. But, you know, listen, I mean, I think it's been fun. I mean, to me, everything we're talking about is great. I mean, this is, you know, the ups and downs, trials and tribulations of life. I am super excited about life. And I'm super excited. I don't know what's going to come next. I'm probably not going to do the mass singer though, because I don't know how to sing, and I don't want to look like Rudy Giuliani. But I'm,
1: yeah, I'm excited right. about what's coming. And I'm excited too. How, how did Trump know uh, about your marital problems? How does he know that stuff?
0: Well, it was well, die was it was in the tablets. Uh, uh, Deirdre right. filed for divorce on me once I took the job. She was really pissed at me because of because it was Trump. You no, know, it wasn't just that. It was other shit. You know, I it was other shit. You know, I I'm frankly. I bear responsibility for a lot of it, you know, but takes two to tangle in a marriage. But Trump was saying that I said nasty things about her uh, in the Oval Office. I'm like, who does that? I mean, who breaks the broke? I probably did, by the way, which I've apologized for. But who breaks the bro code like that? Only tiny Trump. Look at me. Tiny Trump would break the bro code like that. It's he's the most insecure guy that you could ever meet. You never met somebody more insecure than a guy like him. I mean, he had a trying to pretend that he was smarter than everybody. He's telling people during the pandemic, he's smarter than the epidemiologists. I mean, this guy was a piece of work, man. And, and thank God he lost because God only knows what happened with the Ukrainian Russian situation. It you was know, even big disaster.
1: So as you say, I think it's actually, it's worked out well for you because you've got all these different opportunities and experiences to have after, you know, the 11 days or whatever. But uh, in that moment, you're, it's very hard to see that with, you know, foresight. So was that like a really, I mean, how did that feel being fired, you know, very publicly in that way? It sucked. Are you kidding me? It absolutely yeah. sucked. Let me, let me say this to your
0: viewers and listeners. If you're ever having a bad day, as long as it's not health related, imagine my day on the 31st of July, 2017. I'm fired from the White House. I'm lit up by every late night comedian in, the, in America. I'm parodied on Saturday Night Live. I'm torched by Avery Cable News Pundit, and I would say 40 newspapers excoriated me simultaneously. I mean, it, it sucked. I'm not going to hide from that. Of course, it sucked. I, I can say this to you, though. About a week after I got fired, I went to go visit. My son is now 31, but I went to go visit him. He was probably 25 at the time. Hard to believe that my firing was six years ago. But I was out in LA and I was walking on the Santa Monica, you know, like the 3rd or 4th Avenue open shopping mall. I don't know what they call it. And he turned to me and he said, Hey, Pops, are you you okay? I said, well, what do you mean? He called, this is like a disaster. I mean, they're writing one thing after the next about you. It's like total horrifying disaster. Are you okay? And I said, yes, I am okay. I said, by the way, Not only am I okay, watch what I do with this. Okay. And I had to send a message to my son about resilience and about seeing yourself through to the other side. And I would tell your, your viewers and listeners that bad things can happen to you, but life is in a constant state of change. You don't have to stay static in the bad moment. You also have to remember when you're in a good moment to savor it because unfortunately that's moving too. But yeah. you know, I got through it, and I think it's a very yeah. important lesson for people. But
1: no, that sucked. I mean, that was terrible. Are you a are you a crier? I can't cry. I always try to, and then I get so happy that it's starting to work. Well, when's that your the birth- crying stops?
0: When is your birthday?
1: Are you like a cancer? Uh, when's your birthday? I don't know. Uh, Aries, twenty first of March.
0: Yeah, but you are really on the cut. You're more like a tourist, though. Yeah, you're probably <laughs> like a stubborn bastard. You know. But look, I mean. Sure. No, I can cry. No problem. I'm an emotional guy. I have no problem crying. I didn't cry over that. I cry over illnesses. I cry over people's uh, deaths. I I don't cry over stupid shit that happens to me professionally. But, But here's what I would say to you. I definitely believe because you were talking about narcissism earlier and who's a sociopath and who isn't a sociopath. You have something like that happen to you, it makes you way more psychologically minded. So you, you want to talk about empathy. When someone's having a bad day, I think I'm a good phone call. Call me when you're having a bad day. I can make you feel better about the situation. I can put the thing in perspective for you. You know? Yeah, it was so brutal. It was so tough that, um, and so humbling. I do think it's made me more psychologically minded and more aware of the trials and tribulations of others. No question about that.
1: Tell me a bit about crypto because I don't know. I'm not financially minded. I know a lot of listeners will be though, and then some will be sort of novices. So again, you've got to speak in sort of no, you know layman terms and things. But I gather, uh, you know, friends of mine are getting really, really into it. It all went. Bernard, you know, crazy. And then last year it sort of had a bit of a crash. And then I've heard people like you were saying, no, but it's going to come back again. What's going on?
0: Well, I mean, so, I mean, I think I got to step back. Let's say that we're on an elevator together and I had to explain the blockchain. I guess what I would explain to you is that the blockchain is this wonderful delayering mechanism. And so what do I mean by that? Let's say we go to a restaurant together. Instead of paying the tour through American Express or MasterCard or Visa, we could directly pay them through a smart wallet with some value that we both believe to be true. It could be a stable coin that's worth a British pound or a stable coin that's worth a US dollar, or it could be a Bitcoin or Ethereum or something like that. And I think what we need to understand about the blockchain is this wonderful technology that allows us to cut out third parties. And so if we can disintermediate, this is a big breakthrough because for 5,000 years, we've needed the government or somebody to give us our money, which we would transact with. And for 5,000 years, there's always been a third party or a corresponding bank or something like that, that we trust because we don't really trust each other. But now here comes this technology where we don't have to like or trust each other, but there's sanctity, and proven ability in the technology. And so I think that's the first place I would start, Uh, for your viewers and listeners, the blockchain is a decentralizing mechanism that allows people to transfer value with, between each other. And I think that's really where the promise is. Now, if you want to talk about Bitcoin and these other things, I think these are pieces of property, these are digital pieces of property on the blockchain. Now, Bitcoin has probably been the best performing asset over the last 10 years. So much so that even at today's prices, if you put one penny into Bitcoin and 99 cents into cash, let's say British pounds or US dollar, you outperformed everything because of the strength of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is prone because of the early stage technology is prone to great volatility. And so Bitcoin has, I don't know, it's probably had in 14 years since its inception, it's had three to four major bear markets, including last year. But if you believe in the technology and the adaptation of the technology, there's no reason why those coins can't be worth 100000 $150,000. they are priced at about $23,000 today. Uh, there's been fraud in the system. There's been high leverage in the system. Unfortunately, that also comes with new technologies that happened in America during the robber baron age, you know, the age of the industrial revolution and the railroads. It happened again in the telephone industry. It happened in the dot-com industry in the year 2000. And anytime you have a new technology, unfortunately you get fraudsters and scammers, but that shouldn't take away from the promise of the technology. Uh, last thing I'll say is that uh, we're 14 years into Bitcoin. So imagine the Wright brothers, Figuring out how to fly a biplane in 1903, fast forward to 1917, there were many people that said, well, there's no commercial applicability for aviation. You know, 1903 to 1917, you know, some fun people flying around in biplanes, but there'll never be any commercial applicability. They got that wrong because what happens is the technology adapts and it improves and it grows exponentially. And look at where we are now with commercial aviation. And so I just think these tools will be with us a very long time, and they will add a lot of value to the economy. And I, I own a lot of them. And if my clients are patient, they're going to be incredibly rewarded. And if they're not patient, there's really nothing I can do. That's the story of life. And everyone's a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. They, they got to they gotta be patient if they really want to see this thing through
1: i suppose if the planes kept crashing though they might people might not have gotten on them and they might not have been commercially viable but is you know i do a lot of um were crashing
0: back in 1917 that's exactly what was happening these planes were crashing and the wind if you remember we couldn't get across the atlantic until 1927
1: and they were crashing and people said this is completely and totally not viable well fair enough um so I do a lot of stuff on sort of cult think and ideological think. And there's obviously, you know, some people have labeled that crypto and stuff that's a bit cultish or a bit multi-level marketing-ish because you only ever, or at least what I've heard in sort of mainstream, because I really don't know much about it, but you only ever seem to hear people say, but it's going to recover, it's going to do better. Is it in the interest of financial experts to keep saying that because then other people will sign up and that's how it gets better?
0: That's a good question. I mean, that's, that's a cynical take. And again, listen, we were talking about being humble and being right and wrong about things. I could be wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm right about this. You could maybe invite me back in 10 years and Bitcoin's at a zero. And people will say, well, you got that completely wrong. And then I would have to address how and why I got it wrong. Um, but I might be right about it. You know? And so I'm sized appropriately. And I would just tell your viewers and listeners if they have an interest in cryptocurrency or the blockchain or this technology, own a small piece of it, so that if you're wrong, you don't have a permanent impairment on your balance sheet or your capital. But if you're right, you know it could go ten to one, and you'll be very happy. That's that's what I would have said to you about Amazon twenty years ago. Amazon went from one hundred and sixteen to six, and everybody said, "Okay, Amazon's over." Jeff Bezos gone business. He he shot himself in the outer space last year. I think he took Captain Kirk with him on one of the trips. You know, it was the best performing asset in the last, I don't know, I think ever. I think Amazon's probably the best performing ever. So you can be right and you can be wrong. I could be wrong, but the cult stuff, there's elements of that. And that's the part of it that I don't like. So when I'm doing the asset liabilities of Bitcoin and the blockchain, and you're talking about cultish behavior or multi-level marketing, that's on the liability side for somebody like me, I'm like, okay. There is a lot of that. What you're saying is true. There's a lot of people that really don't understand the technology that are chanting it. And because they're long it, they're chanting for it to go up. But then the the flip side of it is I like the technology. I've studied the technology. I wrote a book about Bitcoin last year, and I like the technology. So I don't like the multi-level marketing. I don't like the cult-like stuff about it. And I hope that will fall by the wayside. And we'll be focused on the adaptation of the technology.
1: Uh, there's a big thing around that, Sam Bankman Fried. I know you've spoken about him. Again, just we don't have too much time because I do want to get onto your podcast, but, but uh, the new podcast that's coming out, that's out actually. But uh, what is the most layperson way that you can describe what he was doing? I don't know.
0: I mean, the, most, the, the problem is Sam is tied to crypto. So he's a fraud. It's like Bernie Madoff. It would be like me saying to you, well, the stock market sucks. Because Bernie Madoff perpetrated a fraud that was stock market related, you know, uh, Sam was a fraud. I'm pissed off about it because I trusted and liked him. you know, I'm pissed off about it because he did such a good job of lying. I mean, he had a pristine data room, he had a pristine accounting statements, uh he had some of the top venture capitalists in the world with him because of all of that. And of course, I liked his parents, who were tenured law school professors at Stanford, so he was a complete. We're talking about sociopathic and malevolent. He was a complete fraud and he hurt a lot of people. And I'm just glad that Skybridge and myself were part of his demise. And I'll explain why. We took him to the Middle East to market for him. And it was there that he said some untoward things against one of his competitors who runs Binance. And the Binance guy said, okay, I helped you get FTX started. I'm going to sell you $500 million back of your tokens. And I don't think he thought it was going to cause a collapse, but it did. I'm grateful for that because this thing would have gone on, Andrew, another year or two, and then it would have blown up from a much higher level. You see see what I'm saying? But what was he doing? What was the, what
1: was like for people who like me, who don't understand?
0: So he had you open an account. He said, okay, you can buy your crypto through me known as FTX. So he had you open up an account. You put your money in the account. And let's say you bought one Bitcoin, but you had twenty thousand dollars of cash in the account. He would sweep your cash over to his account, and he would use it mm. for trading purposes in direct violation. Wow. Of terms of service. Yeah, this was this was rank embezzlement. This was is this is this alleged, or is it? Do we are we pretty sure? Oh well, we're going to call oh. it alleged for the court okay. system. But you're asking yeah. me my opinion. I thought you were asking me my opinion. What I thought. Yes. Yes. It, so, yes, I believe that he is a rank fraud and a rank embezzler based on the facts and circumstances that I'm personally aware of and based on the fact that three of his executives that were he was closest to have already pled guilty to it. He's the only one in the inner circle that hasn't pled guilty. It's so When the windows open and you hear clippity-clop outside, it's a horse. It's not a zebra. Okay. So, yes, he is entitled to a fair process. He's entitled to a trial by jury, and he's entitled to have his case heard. We do live in a free society and and he is innocent until proven guilty, but I thought you were asking me my personal opinion. So yes, from a legal point of view, it's alleged fraud and from a legal point of view, we have to wait for the jury to determine it.
1: But if you're asking me my opinion, based on everything that I know, the facts and circumstances. He's a fraud. I think we've covered ourselves um, enough there. Um, Tell me about Open Book podcast.
0: Well, thanks for bringing it up. Open Book is a uh, idea I always wanted to do. Um, You can probably see behind me. There's a ton of books. Um, I had, you know, I basically from a very early age I thought that was the fastest way to get ahead. And so when I was a kid, I would have told you why books. Well, for ten dollars. And 10 hours, you can get 10 years worth of experience. Because of inflation, is now $20. Well, let's just go over a couple of books. I've got them here. So this is one about Your Great Country, The Tudors in Love. Okay, so there you go. Uh, the woman that wrote this book is brilliant. She's writing about a time in your history. It's a fun book to read. You're learning a lot about that era. You're learning a lot about why Henry VIII gave up on the Catholic church. It's an interesting book. This book here, written by Chris Miller, won the Financial Times Award last year, uh, the best business book of the year. And so I'm interviewing authors because I think authors who spend a year of their life researching something, takes me 10, 15 hours to read it. And now I've scaled my intelligence. Well, we're in an attention deficit world now. You don't have to read the whole book. You can come to my podcast, listen to me interview the author. I read the book before I interview the author. And we talk about their work or their ideas or what's going on in their world. Um, And I think it's a fun podcast for me. So like you, I just got it started. I'm like you when you first started this. I just got it started. It's growing nicely, thankfully. Uh, But it's a labor of love for me. So we'll have to see where it turns out. But I enjoy reading and I enjoy interviewing these authors. And
1: So far, it's been a lot of fun. I wish you the best of luck with it. Welcome to the podcasting family. And thank you for being on the edge, Anthony Scaramucci. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony Scaramucci, for coming on the podcast. Make sure to check out Open Book. The link is in the description. It's Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci. You get it in all the normal places where you get your podcasts i think we got on really really well actually and when we got off the recording uh he was saying that we should meet up for a beer sometime so if he's ever in the uk you guys might see some photos of us on on socials uh which is probably the most unlikely couple in many respects um unlikely friendship of anthony scaramucci and just me that would be fun i'd enjoy it let me know what you thought of that episode get in touch on instagram and twitter andrewgold underscore okay sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold for ad free episodes as well as the saturday bonus episodes as well and yeah stick around have a good week and thanks for listening